Hello, welcome to the Blue Grid podcast. This is your host, Major Ani Fedotova, a psychologist at Los Angeles Air Force Base. What makes us resilient? What is grit? Please join me as I set out to discover how we can become grittier. This podcast features current and former military leaders, mental health experts, elite athletes, veterans, special operators, superior performers, POWs, and others affiliated with the military who have overcome significant adversity. Each guest will discuss the unique methods and practices to help airmen and really all service members or anyone interested to build mental toughness and grit. The views expressed are those of the author or guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, the Department of Defense, or the United States government. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Major Ani Fedotva in the Blue Grid Podcast. Today, my guest is Master Sergeant Maria Seaborn. She's an active duty guardian in the Space Force. And Marie and I recently worked together on the Women's Air and Space Power Symposium Project and just had some interesting discussions, particularly about mental health in the military and resilience. And I learned that Maria had a very fascinating and difficult story that I thought that she'd be a great guest for the Blue Grid podcast. Hey, Maria, welcome to the Blue Grid podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Yeah. Could you share what happened to you? About seven years ago, I traveled abroad to Italy and was the victim of a violent hostage situation. I have so many questions about what happened to you, but I'd like to start from the beginning and I'd like to learn a little bit more about you. And you just recently transferred to the Space Force. You served in the Air Force previously. Tell us about yourself. I grew up in Southern California, born and raised California girl. And I am a mom of three amazing kids. Also have two great dogs and a cat. Love being in nature. That's where I find my peace. And throughout all the difficulties in life, that's kind of where I go to find my solace. So I joined the Air Force in 2004 after trying to really find my way after high school. And I decided, hey, I'm going to enlist and serve my country because that's what I do. I, I love to serve and volunteer my time. So I initially went in as a Chinese linguist, learned the language, Mandarin Chinese. Why did you pick Mandarin Chinese? Each linguist has to excel to achieve a certain score to be able to be accepted for a language. There's Korean, Russian, Chinese, Arabic, and I qualified for Chinese. So that was the language I was chosen for. And of course, my Korean mom was not happy with that. <laughs> she was like, why don't you learn my language? Do you speak Korean? I can understand more than I can speak, but I do practice the customs still with my children. But yeah, and so I continued my studies in Chinese, graduated, and then went to Goodfellow Air Force Base for Intel school, where I kind of hit my first big roadblock in the Air Force. That was when I failed the school. I just 
could not, for some reason, process what they expected me to do. And so the Air Force decided, hey, well, we can't use you here, but we'll use you somewhere else. And they did. They placed me in maintenance (laughs) of all career fields. And it was a very humbling experience because I was someone who relied on others to do maintenance for me. But I learned pretty quickly that I needed to be able to be more independent and do things on my own. So you failed the Intel school. What was that like? I don't know how often that happens. People fail it, I suppose, and they get reclassified. What was it like for you? It was really discouraging, to be honest. I felt like I had wasted my time because I spent a year and a half studying a language and the job that they expected me to do was nothing like what I learned, at least in my experience. So it was a huge blow to my ego and to, you know, all the work and time that I spent investing in this language. Did you have any experience at all as a maintainer or this was just what the Air Force gave you? They gave me the job with the greatest need. And that was kind of what I needed to submit to. I had a contract to fulfill, you know. So I completed about six months of training at Shepherd Air Force Base, Texas, and then was assigned to Travis Air Force Base as my first official duty location. So it was there that I met my husband, Scott, and had my first child, Gavin. And for the most part, it was a fulfilling job as far as feeling a sense of accomplishment, being productive. But I also felt like it was not my calling at all and that I had a lot more to give to the Air Force in other capacities. So at my four-year mark, I sought to reclass into a different career field. And by happenstance, I had a functional manager come visit my unit. And, you know, we talked a little bit and he's like, you know, anytime you need anything, just reach out. And I did. I reached out to him and I said, hey, I want to be released from this career field. And so he released me and I spoke to some friends about what space was like space command and they were like hey it's a great job you should apply for it and so I did and attended about three and a half months of training at Vandenberg Air Force Base so I was about five months pregnant when I went to training there (laughs) and it was different being TDY alone and pregnant I definitely had moments where I became very emotional and it became lonely being a pregnant woman at school while everybody else was out drinking. But within a few months, I graduated and PCS'd to Colorado, Shriver Air Force Base. And it was a very exciting time. I felt like space was exactly where I needed to be. And so when I went to Shriver, I became a missile warning operator Again, a very exciting, fulfilling job. The shifts were not all that fun, but it was rewarding for sure. And following that position, I 
became a scheduler for a while because I, I had my second child at that time, my daughter Ashlyn, and it allowed me to spend more time with her and to cater to a newborn child's needs. Anyway, during that time, I also became very active in the various base organizations. I joined the Sexual Assault Prevention and Response Program, and I felt like the program, while it definitely had its positive aspects, it still needed improvement, and I felt like I could contribute to making those changes to the systemic issues that our airmen were facing at the time. This was before the BMT sexual assault issues occurred and all that. So it was still a pretty new program at the time. But I got along really, really well with the SARC, the BA, the paid victim advocate there, and the rest of the team. They were like a family to me. So I loved being a part of that group. In addition to that, I also became a resilience training assistant. And there I kind of learned to strengthen not only others' pillars, but my own as well. You know, we learned the Air Force about our four pillars of strength. And I really felt like that was something that I could help others achieve because mental health especially was so important to me. Even since I was young, myself and my brother struggled with depression growing up. And so I felt like that was something that others needed just to realize that, you know, others, that they're not alone in the world, that they had others Mm -hmm. to rely on. So it was about 2014, the beginning of 2014, where I received a phone call from overseas and it was really unexpected, but I had kept in touch with my friend who was my host sister from an exchange family I stayed with in Italy in high school. And she said, hey, I'm getting married this summer. I would love for you to attend. I know it's a big ask, but I'd love for you to be there. And I was so excited at the thought of returning to Italy because I visited them once more after being an exchange student. But I was just like, yeah, this is going to happen. And so we found my sister-in-law to be able to watch the kids And my husband, Scott, and I at the time flew to Italy that summer. And we decided, hey, you know, we're going to make a second honeymoon out of this and also try to rekindle our marriage because we had been struggling for a while. It was at the five-year mark. We had our struggles. And so we flew into Rome and stayed at my friend's apartment there. I would say they're pretty well-to-do. So we stayed at their apartment and we toured the Coliseum. And basically I was playing a tour guide for my husband because he had never been. And so we went to Tuscany and went wine tasting and that was so wonderful. But I ended up spraining my ankle, stepping down the steps of one of the medieval castles (laughs) there. And so that was a bummer, but I didn't allow it to ruin my vacation, you know? And so we drove back and that evening I noticed like a weird noise and there was water pouring down from the ceiling. (laughs) And so. In the apartment? 
yes, in the apartment. And this was days before the wedding. And I was like, oh my gosh, I don't want to like have to burden them. But, you know, this is a big deal. So I called and apparently there was an apartment above that flooded. And their apartment, as a result, flooded. And some of my items got wet, but that was okay. They were all just material things, right? So anyway, so we stayed in Rome for a few days and then we drove into their town, Antico di Corrado, which is a beautiful hilltop town, centuries years old. And it's a population of 1,800 people, so everybody knows each other. And we drove into the town and stayed at a little motel that they had there, like a couple of rooms, and then went to the wedding the next day. And it was everything that you would think of in an Italian wedding. The church was just so ornate. There were white flowers everywhere. The church had people flooding out the doors into the town square because it was so small. But everybody wanted to see this girl get married. You know, it was just wonderful. And then there was a big party afterwards. The night had passed. And the night after the wedding, my husband and I stayed in the home of the family villa where the parents lived. And so that evening that we arrived, I had a really hard time sleeping. It was just, I don't know if it was just excitement of being there again or, or what had caused me to have insomnia, but I first noticed a shadow in the curtains and I was like a little scared and suspicious. I was like, this is weird. That figure was kind of pacing back and forth. And I was like, okay, maybe it's somebody who should be there. It didn't seem too skeptical to me. So I left it alone. Like somebody, like a guard or something like that? Yeah, yeah. I found out after the fact that it was a guard that they had hired. And then there were mosquitoes everywhere. They were buzzing in my ears. And I hate mosquitoes. They love me. And so after dealing with them, I was so tired. I eventually went to bed. It was about 1.30. And I knew the next day that the caterers were supposed to come and pick up all of their things out of the room we were staying in. And so I went to bed. And then not long after falling into a light sleep, I heard deep pounding steps above me in the ceiling. And I was like, what is that noise? And then I heard the steps come closer. They were coming down the stairs. And all of a sudden, the bedroom door opened. It was pitch black. And I had a bright light shining in my eyes. And I was like, what is going on? And I thought it was the caterers, like in my delirium. I thought it was the caterers. And I was like, it's too early. Go away. (laughs) And then the light came closer to me and so you weren't scared in the beginning because you were just you didn't think anything of it yeah i was delirious i was so out of it and the figure came towards me because i was sitting up in the bed the figure came towards me and pushed me down and i was like what in the world and they say you know in times of distress you're either going to have flight or fight. And I learned in that instance that I fight 
<laughs> because I kicked him as a reaction in the stomach and kind of hurt. I saw the figure kind of like go back and he was not happy at all. He grabbed my hair and then just ringed me around like I was, you know how they ring chickens around when they're trying to kill them? Like mm. he ringed me around like that. And I remember screaming at the top of my lungs, no. And then he punched me in my left eye and kneed me in my ribs. And then I was silent after that. I fell into the fetal position and... What was going through your mind? I was just reacting to what was happening. I didn't really process anything at that moment. My husband, Scott, said, stay down. They have a gun. And I was like, they? And there was a person next to him with a gun. And in Italian, they said, stay down. Do you speak Italian or do you understand? I understand, yeah. And so it sounded like they were going through our stuff. And I was like, okay. And then after that, in Italian, they said, cake it up. And so, you know, we did as we were told. I kind of translated for my husband because he didn't understand anything. And they held a gun to my back and his. And I had my sprained ankle and they told us to go upstairs. And there were three flights. <laughs> so it was a three-story house. So that was not easy. But in that moment, it's like life or death. In that moment, what are you thinking? Are you thinking, what's going to happen to you? Or are you feeling afraid? In that moment, I wanted to make it up the stairs because I knew the parents were there. And I wanted to make sure they were okay. Your survival instincts just kind of kick in. And I could hear the guy that I kicked. I could hear him saying, like, what's your problem? And then we went upstairs to the room and the guy kind of pushed me towards the bed. And he was like, go to your daddy in Italian. And I was like, oh my gosh, they think I'm their daughter. I just got married. And so I went around the bed to where the father was and linked arms with him in the bed and just kind of laid there. And the mom was on the edge of the bed, you know, looking really frightened. And she was like, oh, no, 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 that's not our daughter. That's our American friend. And I was like, oh, great. Like, why did you have to say that? You know, now we're really going to die. Mm. Because I just, the state of the world though, that we were in at that time, it was, I mean, it was 2014. So we still were pretty heavy in the war on terror. And these men were not Italian. They were for certain Eastern European. So I wasn't sure if they were like rebels that were against Americans or not. But anyway, in that moment, I was frightened, you know, that we would die because we were Americans. And I just, in that moment, laying there in the bed, I just, you have nothing else in that moment except your faith in God, if you do have it, you know, which I did. 
and I prayed to God and I asked him to watch over my children. Thankfully, they weren't there because I didn't know what would happen to us. We were surrounded by four other men with guns pointing at the bed. They were all hooded and masked. They had, from what I recall, jeans and Adidas type jackets on, Adidas shoes. You know, it's a very popular thing to wear in Eastern Europe. (laughs) Yeah. And then I saw a couple of men leave the room, come back in with my friend's brother and his wife who were staying in the home as well. And so there were about six men with guns pointing at six people on the bed. We were all just piled on the bed. And the mom was on the edge of the bed crying, but also praying. And you could see her just recanting the Catholic prayers, they say. And they were asking us where everything was in the house all the jewelry. So they basically dug out all of the heirlooms that the family had collected for for centuries. They tore apart the bookcase in the master bedroom. And then they said, it's impossible that in a house this big and this nice, that this is all you have. Give us all like your jewelry and money and anything of value, or we will kill you all. And the mom was like, oh, well, I could give you all of my fur coats and I know where some watches are and I'll go get those. And so they did. And they're like, okay, what else? And I was like, oh my gosh. Did you think that was not a smart thing to do? I was nervous for us because I didn't know what else we had to give, you know, to salvage our lives. Mm -hmm. And... Honestly, after noticing what they wore, I had my eyes closed for the majority of the time because it just seemed like a nightmare to me and I wanted it to end. And if they were going to shoot me, like I didn't, or anybody else, I didn't want to see it. And so the mom's like, you know, I can go to the bank tomorrow and we have more money in the bank. You can come back then. (laughs) Which I was like, oh my goodness. When you say, oh my goodness, what do you mean? Because for one, they would be really dumb to come back because the police would be in there waiting. But I was like, no, we don't want to lure them back with anything. So then the men were like, okay, nobody move. Nobody do anything. If you move, we will shoot you. And so they had one of those turnkey locks to the room where you could like pull out a key. And so they all locked us in the room. We couldn't get out. And after a while, we heard a car leave. And then we, we were just kind of sitting there waiting to make sure that everybody had left. And when we realized that they were gone for certain, then the mom and son in a panic, we're like, okay, we need to go down to the police station right now. And so basically like Romeo and Juliet style, we threw the bed sheet 
out over the balcony and they held on to it and jumped down three stories. And then they ran like barefooted down the cobblestone streets to the nearest Gabinetti. It's like their police station. And then we did the same for the son's wife so that she could unlock us out of the room. She unlocked the door, the dad, the wife, Scott and I got into the car and went to the police station. And basically I was giving my report to the police over Google Translate because <laughs> that was the best I could do with the amount of detail I had. They tried to capture the guys, but they didn't have any luck. All we knew was that they had a blue BMW, a light blue BMW that was captured on camera from a street corner, I think it was. But all the items that they left with were not traceable. They didn't take any of our phones. I had my military ID and they didn't take that, but they took cash, no credit cards or anything, nothing they could be traced with. Of course, we didn't sleep at all the rest of the day. And what I found from the Italian culture in comparison to what we would see here is the entire town, I mean, they came in to their home and were genuinely concerned with how we were doing. And of course, they grew up together, but open doors, people came in and they were just checking in on them to make sure they were okay. And the days following, basically, I was in and out of the hospital, getting an MRI to make sure everything was okay with my neck and the ophthalmologist for my eye to get pictures for that. But I knew that as a military member and as an American, having something like that happen, I needed to report it. And so I called the U.S. Embassy and notified them of the incident, told them that I was an active duty military member and needed to report to the nearest OSI. They had an OSI agent come out, spoke fluent Italian, tried to interview them to find any more facts that could help. But because it ended the way it did, it was really out of their jurisdiction. They said it was more in the jurisdiction of the local police. So with that, that was kind of the end of my experience with the OSI agent. But I did also call my unit back home and in Colorado. I called my superintendent, who was a serious man, but he always looked out for the airmen. And he was like, you know, I know you're scared right now, but just keep your head on your shoulders and we'll take care of you when you come home, okay? I was like, okay. <laughs> like, if somebody told me what had happened, I would be emotional for them. So I came back and that superintendent really carried me through my healing process. I don't think he realizes how much of a part and how instrumental he was in my healing, but 
he knew who I was before the incident happened and coming home, he saw me kind of lose a sense of myself, Hmm. but he knew my potential and always saw my worth. And basically he never gave up on me when I gave up on myself. And you gave up on yourself when you got back? Yeah, for sure. I came home and I was relieved to be back on American soil. But at the same time, I still suffered from the effects of the trauma that I received. I mean, I had visible wounds to my face and people were jokingly saying at the squadron, like, what happened to you? Did you get mugged? And I was like, oh my gosh, like I... I just turned my face away. I was like, no. You didn't tell people? No, I didn't. It was too traumatic to relive and to retell at the time. There were so many days that I would go to work and then in the middle of the day I would cry. And I went to the people I felt like I received the most support from. And to me, that was the supper office who I you know, mentioned earlier. They were like a family to me. And so I remember talking to them and telling them I wish that it never happened to me. And I remember breaking down and the victim advocate was like, you need to go talk to mental health. And I was so scared at the time because it was my first assignment with the security clearance, you know? And so I was like, gosh, I just reclassed. I don't want to lose my job. I'm pretty much the sole provider for my family. You know, I had a husband, but I was providing financially for our family. And so I was not sure, but they assured me that there wouldn't be any negative effects. The Sapper office or mental health? The Sapper office. Because I think they called somebody who was in the same career field. They were like, will a person receive negative effects or be able to not perform their job? if they're seen at mental health and they said no. And so I went to mental health and they connected me with a provider. It was okay, but I felt it was very clinical. I kind of felt like I was a guinea pig or like looked at in that way. What makes makes you say that? Just because everything was very sterile, like in the questioning, it just was not personable. And I don't know if it was due to the provider's lack of experience or what, it wasn't very fitting. Mm -hmm. You didn't feel understood. Right. And just very unsure if, I guess, skeptical if it would work in my healing. But I was pretty good at putting on a face. I would go to therapy and, you know, some days I felt okay and others I didn't, but I was pretty good at talking my way through and after about four months of going to therapy he was like I think you're ready to finish your therapy here he's like you seem like you're doing really well and I was like okay that wasn't true for you I think a part of me wanted to believe that I was healed but I wasn't no I wasn't about a couple months later rather than the paranoia that I initially felt. I felt paranoid and scared and just had really bad nightmares. Instead of those symptoms, my trauma had manifested into anger 
I became angry at what those men took from me. I felt like they took away my sense of security, not only like feeling secure physically, but within myself. They took that sense of control away from me and I was not stable. So I would often come home being very angry and yelling and it was not who I was. But that continued for, I would say, until from about February of 15 until about August when I PCSed. And I knew that at that point, like, my marriage was falling apart. The trip, the experience did not rekindle our marriage. In fact, it tore us further apart. And how was your husband doing with this? Because he also went through that. Right. He did. He went through it and he also saw it from a different perspective, you know, as somebody who, as a spouse who saw his wife get violently beaten. But he worked through his pain, I think, in other ways. I think that he was also depressed and angry. But at the time, we were both dealing with some pretty heavy emotions and effects to our body in mind. And so it was just hard to be there for each other. And when I told him that I wanted to confide in him, he was like, well, you know, why don't you go talk to somebody? Which I did. I was already, you know, but well, earlier. But I felt like if my husband can't be there for me in my darkest time, how can I be with him for the rest of my life? through the rest of life circumstances. So that was kind of a turning point for me in our marriage. And after we PCS in August to Vandenberg, I was like, hey, it's not working out between us. And we separated. So that was in of itself a rough time because when you separate and divorce, you're grieving a loss. Yeah. I especially felt for the kids because I felt like they were the ones who were going to be affected by this the most, not me. Did you ever tell the kids? Did you ever have a conversation about what happened to you, even in the most rudimentary way? They just knew that something bad happened in Italy. That's all they know. That's all they know to this day. Because hmm. I just can't. I don't want to bring that kind of terror into their lives. Not yet, you know, they're not ready for it. Yeah. But it was definitely a challenging period. My anxiety was an all-time high. I had constant thoughts in my head of feeling overwhelmed, not being able to be the mom that my kids deserved. I fell into a very, very deep depression and to make things worse, I also had a very micromanaging supervisor at work. And she couldn't understand, of course, you know, what I was going through. Did co-workers or supervisors knew anything about your past? No. I decided to talk to a chaplain because they had the most confidentiality. And after talking to the chaplain and telling her about my symptoms that I was experiencing she was like you know it wouldn't hurt 
to go to mental health and ask for some medication that would take the edge off a little. <laughs> and she said it just like that. I was constantly emotional. I knew I was depressed because I could not stop crying. Mm. And so I once again had some fears about my job, not so much in, you know, whether I could seek mental health, but the prescriptions, like that was a new element for me. I was like, I don't know if I can do that. And so I went to mental health and had an amazing provider there. That to me turned my belief in the mental health system in the Air Force because he and I were such a great fit. He was a great listener, but also was able to, I don't know, just kind of pick up where we last left off. And it really felt like I was opening up to my best friend, but with an element of these are some techniques you can try to use when you come into that state of mind. So he was very helpful and understanding and compassionate. So I was grateful to have that therapy. And also in combination with that therapy, be introduced to psychiatry and have medication to kind of alleviate that anxiety and depression. I went from having like over 50 anxious thoughts a day to maybe one or two. You took the edge off. <laughs> right. <laughs> we took the edge off. Yeah, it was so significant. And I was like, this is amazing, you know, but I did question psychiatrists. I was like, will this affect my job? And she was like, I prescribe this to pilots. If pilots can be out there flying an airplane, like you can be sitting in front of a computer operating your job, you know? So that really assured me in all of my worries. Wow, oh, what a story. It's hard to hear. And I'm sorry, you didn't have the best experience in the beginning. And I'm also happy to hear that you found providers who worked for you and kind of guided you in the right way. Yeah, to this day, I continue to seek therapy most recently because I experienced difficulty in my second marriage. Tell me what happened. I continued therapy basically throughout my entire time at Vandenberg, minus the last few months I was there. I felt like I was pretty confident in handling my emotions at that point. But before I left Vandenberg, I met someone who I thought was my soulmate. We hit it off really great, and we got married in June of 18. I went from being a single mom with three kids to being married with seven kids. <laughs> but it was fun. It was a lot, but it was fun. And the kids were all close in age and got along great. My husband commissioned, and then he went into training, and we were apart for a year. So that in of itself was tough to deal with, being a single mom again. So you stayed with seven kids? No, his four kids lived with their mom in Colorado. And so I went back to being a single mom with my three kids while he was off in training. But I just maintained the best I could, you know, going to work and taking care of the kids after work. I received orders to Northern Virginia 
for my next assignment and was very excited for that and for establishing a future and finally being reunited with my husband after all that time. But as soon as we PCSed here, things at first seemed like they were going well, but he just didn't seem himself. He started to distance himself from me. And eventually he physically and emotionally shut down from me. He distanced himself, stonewalled really. And I was just utterly confused. He would not tell me why. And after months of this, he said that he wanted to end our marriage. And I was in disbelief. The amount of time it took to rebuild that sense of security and like that safety net you feel with people, it just broke. Was it completely unexpected? The avoidance and all that was unexpected. And then for him to say that he just gave up on our marriage, yes. To me, that was unexpected. I didn't think of him as somebody who would give up so easily. I don't know why. Did you ask him? I'm sorry, what did you say? Did you ask him? I did many times, and he told me that I didn't listen. Hmm. But I'll be honest with you, there were many times after work that I was tired, you know, like I'd come home and taking care of the kids, fed them dinner, help them with schoolwork. And by the time that was all done, I was tired. And then he, of course, had his own stressors driving a good 45 minutes to an hour each way. So yeah, I think we were just both burnt out in different ways. But the thing that hurt me the most was that he never expressed his emotions to me. You know, everything was his thoughts about the direction our marriage was heading in was always close hold. And when we tried to go to counseling, which I suggested, he had already decided to end our marriage. He said things would never go back to the way they were. It sounds like you made it to be your fault. Yeah, I'll be honest with you. There were many times that there was a lot of blame for the direction our marriage went. He said that I was always wanting to do things without asking him. To me, I'm spontaneous. I like adventure. And I think that's something that he enjoyed, at least in the beginning. We like to experience new food, new places to see, you know, things to do. But yeah, I was blamed for everything from our assignment here to the location of our wedding. We got married in Kauai and I was like, I didn't hold the gun to his head, you know, like he, he made that decision with me. Why didn't he say no, you know? I was honestly just baffled at all of this and so hurt, so deeply hurt. I didn't realize until a couple of months ago, really, I was like, wait a second, 
looking back, I was blamed for a lot and I think he was gaslighting me. I think that there were things that he could not see within himself to blame himself for and decided to just throw it all on me. So it's taken a lot of therapy and finding support with my friends. My friends are nowhere nearby. They're all in California, Texas, all over the United States. But they have been there for me throughout this this whole entire process. Calling me, texting me. There were suicidal ideations during this time, even though I have three kids. There were times I was just like, I just want to be out of this pain. Why does this stuff always happen to me? (laughs) I just hated it. I hated the feeling. Was this your worst, darkest moment? Yeah, I would say, and my friend even said, like, you've been through something that no one else has really been through. Like, not many people have been through a hostage situation. And you overcame that. And you can get through this. But I don't know, it's just nothing prepares you for a hostage situation. You know, I felt like I could be as resilient as I could. I had plenty of fallbacks before in life that helped me, I guess, in a sense, bounce back. But nothing really prepares you for heartbreak, especially in someone that you are so vulnerable with and place your complete trust in. You talk to me about the sense of safety that's been taken away from you by these men, the the sense of control, psychological and physical safety. At some point, it sounds like you started to regain it and your ex-husband was the one who you allowed yourself to experience that vulnerability. What was it about that relationship that you allow yourself to be vulnerable? I felt like he was my safety net, you know, like I could open up to him and nothing was judged. I could be myself and we were, I thought, very compatible. Yeah, but there was, there was obviously a side to him that was unresolved that he needed to work on, so... Yeah, it's just taken me time to bounce back and find my self-worth. Yeah, it sounds like it's so much more painful when the person that you entrust with your deepest, darkest secrets takes advantage of that and hurts you, kind of turns around and hurts you more. Yeah. I feel like I'm in a good spot now. Of course, I'm not completely healed as it's pretty recent, but... I feel like I am on a good trajectory of where I'm going from here. I did what I felt I do in times of hardships, and that's take on projects (laughs) to keep myself busy. And I've had so many opportunities during some of my darkest times here. I started working on a United States Space Force heritage coin with a friend of mine and 
we've sold about almost $30,000 worth. I haven't personally made that money. It's all just for morale purposes, but we've been able to sell it to people all over the, the Space Force. And so that's been an amazing, fun learning experience. And then just having open doors through the women's initiative teams and being able to have a voice in topics that I'm passionate about, mental health and diversity and inclusion. It's been very rewarding. What do you think was most helpful during some of your most difficult times? I would say recognizing and being able to access my safety nets when things would start to spin out of control. For one, my relationship with God and the trust that I had built with my therapist and the support teams that I had in my life. So like the Sapper teams, both at Shriver and at Vandenberg, my closest friends who really pulled me through. And also like accepting the new normal in my life. I really despise the fact that I needed to take medication because I felt like I wasn't normal, I was broken. There was a period where I was like, you know, I'm just not gonna take it. And when that happened, the anxiety just flooded back in. And I was like, all right, this is what I need. And so just like somebody with bad joints needs glucosamine, you know, it's there to help quiet the anxious thoughts. So the medication and then accepting that I needed things in my life to ground me and center me. So yoga and meditation have been really big instrumental in finding that presence and staying present in the moment and not having to worry about what happened in the past or what will happen in the future. And then that in turn has helped me really focus on self-love and worth. Did you start doing yoga and meditate recently than after this recent divorce? I started doing it heavily when I was in California after my first divorce. And this time around, I've been doing yoga like my own clothes, not necessarily taking classes, especially with COVID, but meditation has been huge for me. Dedicating myself to three things that I journal every single day, or I won't say every single day, but I try to do it every single day. And it's something that I found in an article and I was like, hey, you know, I think that this is something very simple and something I can do. And so I journal. The first thing is I will focus on. And the second is I'm grateful for. And the third is I will let go of. Is it like for the next day? Yes. Mm -hmm. Or whatever it may be for that day or for the next day. But I, me, I, I normally journal um, at night. So it would be for the next day. Um, I will focus on, I'm grateful for, and then. Could you share a recent example? So I will say like, Recently, I wrote, I will focus on fixing the things in my house because there are a couple things that I need to fix. 
and that I've kind of put on the back burner, you know? So it kind of gives me a goal to focus on. And then I'm grateful for, of course, we have heard hundreds of times the science behind gratitude. Mm -hmm. And so focusing on that has helped help me be thankful for what I have in my life. And then I will let go of, I will let go of anger, I think was my most recent one. I had some anger towards my ex. So that's something I just need to let go. And sometimes it repeats in my journal and that's okay. Mm -hmm. It just means it's something that I need to continue to let go of. Thank you for sharing that. Do you have recommendations for service members who are struggling with difficult times at this moment? I would say to never stop fighting. You know, being in the military, we're so fortunate to have multiple resources available to us. I see just recently even people on social media saying how desperately they need a therapist, but they don't have the means to pay for it. And so, you know, it may take a few times, just like me, before you find someone you can trust and be vulnerable with, but it's so worth the fight and you're worth the fight. And that your perseverance will pull someone else out from the darkness. Thank you for that. Is there anything else that I'm not asking you that you'd like to share? I would just encourage everybody to seek help. Find just that one person you trust in your life. Because there will be dark times. And life, it's a never-ending roller coaster. It really is of ups and downs. But there will always be people there along the way to help you through dark moments. And there is so much joy left to be had that you may not have experienced if you didn't bring yourself up. Thank you so much for sharing. This was Mass Surgeon Maria Seaborn and the Blue Grid Podcast. This is your host, Major Anya Fedotova. Thank you for listening to the Blue Grid Podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed this interview. My goal is to air the narratives of courage, vulnerability, and crit to normalize the airman's own challenges and help them internalize the message of hope and recovery. This discussion is not a formal medical advice, and any techniques, treatment, diagnosis, or alternative actions discussed are not a recommended treatment or course of action for all listeners, and are not a replacement for professional medical assistance. You are encouraged to seek medical or psychological help for your unique issue. If you have feedback, please find me in the global. My email is anavfedotova.mil at mail.mil. It's anna.v.fedotova.mil at mail.mil.